Assalamu alaikum. Hello, I'm Khalil Alika. And I'm Zahir Parker. And welcome to AccidentalMuslims.com. So AccidentalMuslims.com is a, a movement, a platform where we showcase present and future leaders to help us live with purpose. And we believe that everybody has a story to tell. This podcast hopes to add value. So welcome and enjoy. So my name is Mohamed Dawa and you're listening to AccidentalMuslims.com. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And Zaid, co-host. Thank you, Khalil. Mohamed, welcome to our podcast. I'm sure the listeners will be taking benefit from what you have to share. And yeah, just sit back, relax, and let's have a conversation. Mohamed, so if you had to introduce yourself to someone, I mean, how, how would you? How would you introduce yourself? Besides, I'm Mohamed Dalway. <laughs> well, I was actually just going to go with that one. Hi, I'm Mohamed. <laughs> so I don't even go with my second name, just Mohamed. Is, is it okay? Yeah. And then normally I follow up with it that Mohamed is a very uncommon name in the world. <laughs> so what do you do? It's a difficult question. I do three main things. So uh, myself and my colleague uh, run a, a social for-profit called EM Guidance. Uh, I am the president of MSF for Doctors Without Borders, and I am busy completing my PhD. How do you find that balance between the three plus uh, you married? Yes, yes. Okay, I so recently got married. So you got four balls there, juggling four balls. How do you how do you find that balance? I don't. I, I, I don't profess to just think that I have balance yet. I strive every day to try and find that balance. But I haven't found it yet. So I also believe that you 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 studied medicine. Yes. And so you're not the first case that studied medicine but then stopped practicing. Mm-hmm. So I, is that like a common common thing now? People do medicine but then branch off to something else, like entrepreneurship. Or I don't know. I actually love clinical medicine, and I've always loved it. It was one of the things that uh, I loved most about being a, a medical doctor. And the problem is that as a medical doctor, as a clinician, you help one-on-one. You help one patient at a time. In EM guidance or with mobile technologies or with technology, I get to help more than one person at a time. I get to help hundreds, thousands, if not more. And I think that kind of benefit to people is what attracts me outside of clinical work. Do I miss clinical work? Yes. Would I go back? Definitely. The question is how and when and how do I then fit that into an already busy schedule? But I I mean, I think a lot of people study medicine for the wrong reasons and they don't really love what they do. And that's one of the biggest problems that I find in lots of uh, my colleagues that they complain all the time. But you have to love what you do. If you don't love it, don't do it. It's quite simple. So what was your reason for studying medicine? So I actually wanted to be a biomedical engineer, like make prosthetic limbs for people in Africa. And when I inquired about it, and obviously I was very young and naive around this, is that they told me you have to study engineering and then medicine, or medicine and then engineering. So I applied for both, and I got in for medicine first. So I went to go do medicine, and then my plan was always to go do engineering. <laughs> but after six years of studying, you 
kind of get a little tired. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so now I'm doing engineering in a different way with mobile tech. Oh, awesome. So you touched on already in terms of what was the most enjoyable part or one of the enjoyable parts of medicine is the one-on-one clinical. You, you actually enjoyed that sort of uh, engagement. Uh, where were you placed uh, in your community service? Or, or? So I did my internship at Grotesky uh, Hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, at Grotesky, you learn to be really good with a stapler and a punch uh, okay. because you do a lot of administrative work. Uh, so I was an excellent punch person. Awesome. And then I went into rural medicine. That I actually I really, really loved. I went into a place called Manguzi Hospital, which is on the border of KwaZulu-Natal and Mozambique. It's literally the furthest hospital you could get from Grotesky. <laughs> and uh, before out before going outside of the country, obviously. Mm. And it was stunning. It was rural. It was it was scary a lot of the times. You were alone, but um, you get to truly enjoy that clinical work. And you have patients coming to you when you go to the supermarket uh, screaming at you, saying, Udukatela, Udukatela, thank you so much, because... You helped him. Mm. And I think uh, the patients were very appreciative of the work that you did. And, uh, yeah, it really does make you feel special and feel part of a bigger community in South Africa. Something I was talking to a friend of mine about is with education or the the opportunity that you have to study, you, you don't realize the privilege that you actually have. Um, especially, uh, I know when I do appearances in the townships, the community looks up to people that are educated. Did you find that as well in, in your career in the rural aspect or even overseas? Well, I, mean, I don't know if they look up to you, but I, I think there is definitely a certain amount of respect. Um, for me, it's also like you have to earn that respect. I mean, you, you treat them with dignity and with care and with uh, humility they always respond to you. And I think one of the key things that, that they kept on telling me was that the nurses were very happy with me. And, you know, at the end of my stay, they said the reason why they were happy with me wasn't because I was a great doctor or a nice person. It was because I wore long pants. Because <laughs> all the other doctors would wear shorts when they would come into the ward round. And me, because I had, like, these thin little Indian legs, I wanted to wear long pants. Mm-hmm. And that was a sign of respect for them. So it's about respecting the people that you work with. And uh, I think th- it's a mutual respect that comes from working with so closely with the community. And uh, you really do enjoy it. I, I enjoyed that uh, that connection to the community. I felt part of that community. Yeah, you feel that you contribute to the society. Mm. So how did you get involved with MSF, Doctors Without Borders? So I was in this rural hospital, and once a month, a surgeon would fly out from KwaZulu-Natal, from Durban, and they would come help us, would teach us how to do operations uh, in Manguzi. And one of the days, a rural, I mean, a surgeon from Durban came out to to meet me, to meet us and come help us. And she actually told me about uh, MSF because I was showing her some of the basically handmade tools that we made to treat our patients and to improve the the wound dressings that we had. So she was like, well, you seem really handy and you like rural medicine, I think you should join MSF. And I never actually heard of MSF before that. And I was like, oh, 
sounds like a cool organization let me give it a try and that's how it started and so what was your, like your first mission type of thing did you travel like did you go to Pakistan or Afghanistan yes yeah, so I, I always wanted to go to Africa okay. you know, oh, yeah, I wanted to go into Sierra Leone I was South African I have a very strong affiliation to South Africa and the recruiter took like one look at me and obviously your podcast listeners can't see how I look but I, I obviously look very Southeast Asian and the guy took one look at me and I was like you know like I really want to go to like Sierra Leone or South Sudan. He was like, no, 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 no. Mohammed, I think you're really going to fit in into Pakistan. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, so my first mission was in northern Pakistan on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan in a place called Timugara. And it was an emergency medicine uh, hospital or room in a bigger hospital that I worked at for six months. So how was your experience there? It was a tough experience. Right? It was a, it was difficult. Like I mean, we faced bomb blasts, victims, multiple gunshot wounds. There was a lot of fighting between the Taliban and the Pakistani army. So there was a, a lot of casualties, and uh, we lost quite a few patients. And I think that was the hardest part. And it's from those experiences that. You start looking at where are the gaps and where are the, the, the difficulties and the flaws within our system and how do we actually improve that and how do we push to continually strive to improve that because I think that's one of the key lessons that I've learned is that uh, you have to fight for your patients and you have to fight for what you believe can change the system. So that's where you made the switch from. That opened your eyes to make the switch from medicine to technology and startups and I think it was one of the stories that was a pivotal moment for me I think one of the other ones was my second mission so I went into Libya and it was just after Gaddafi fell or they lost Tripoli and we went in and we found that so the the, the rebels that overtook the, um, the Gaddafi forces were basically trying to secure the city. And in Libya at the time, you had many migrant workers that were from Central Africa that came through Libya. And some of them were manual laborers. They would work as painters, they would work as street sweepers, all the jobs that the Libyans didn't want to do. The problem was that in Gaddafi's army, he hired African mercenaries. So for the rebels, anybody who was African or black was automatically seen as a um, threat or a previous mercenary. So they would round them up and put them into these camps. And there was abuse in the camps. There was beating up. We would have reports of people being beaten up. There was no food. There was no water. There was no sanitation. And for the first time, you start realizing how you become not only a medical doctor, but an advocate for your patient. And you start speaking out about it. And I think that's one of the things that MSF taught me a lot was that it's a, it's a French term called timoniage, which means to speak out. And it literally was speaking out and calling on the UN, calling on the UNHCR, and making sure that people know about the plight of these individuals so that they don't become forgotten and that they don't become victims of uh, just, you know, casualties of war. So I think that kind of changed the concept of 
you being a clinical doctor and you being an advocate of change or advocate for your patients? You know, when you mention emergency medicine, the first thing that I picture is ER, you know, the old series that used to come on MNET. And I remember Dr. Kovach going out into Africa on some mission. Is that more or less what Doctors Without Borders is about, going out into these remote areas, uh, no facilities, no or, or next to nothing sort of uh, resources? And, and how do you guys cope with such things, if it is like that? So I have to admit, I, I never actually watched it. <laughs> I never had MNET as a child. Oh, okay, okay. So okay, I, I kind of missed that. Uh, okay, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So. I, I had still SABC 1, 2, and 3. Oh, okay. Um, I was a lucky guy then. Yeah. <laughs> I, we didn't even have ETB, I think. ETB came out later, yeah. I think it's different in different circumstances. I think you do have limited resources in a lot of the countries that we go to. I think those resources are changing now as we change the types of operations that we do. In terms of like in northern Pakistan, we had quite a sophisticated setup. But in Sierra Leone, we never had a sophisticated setup and it kind of matches the facilities that are available within that country to a certain degree. And a lot of the times, you know, within South Africa, we have limited resources and we do really well. And, you know, that's why South African doctors are, are world-renowned for being uh, really hardworking and great clinicians because we see a, a quite a large mix of gross pathology with limited resources and we try and deal with it. So for me, within MSF, a lot of it has to do with uh, setting it up properly, like the hospitals, we have a lot of resources which we can bring from other countries into that country and looking at the need on the ground and trying to match that need and trying to also then create a space where our patients are taken care of. So it is rough and it is has limited resources and the way we deal with it is we fight and we fight to make those resources available. Is there a lot of politics involved in these in this sort of things? Because I'm sure if you mention the rebels taking over towns, aren't they going to control what limited resources they are to impose their power? So that's the one nice thing about MSF is that we push a very strong impartiality and neutrality within all our operations. So we make it very clear to all parties on the ground that we will treat everybody and that we are a neutral organization so that we cannot be used or instrumentalized in one way or another. Obviously, it's not perfect, but we strive in every single mission to always communicate that to every single party on the ground and to make sure that in Afghanistan, we treat the army and Taliban. It doesn't matter. When you come into our hospital, you're a patient. Uh, We have a very strong no-guns policy in all our missions, and when you come into the hospital, you don't come in with any kind of weapons, so you come in as a patient. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, you are a patient, and that's how we treat you. And I think that's a key message that we, we strive for, and that's one of the reasons why we don't get instrumentalized that often, because everybody kind of knows that's who MSF is. So how do people get involved if they want to get involved in MSF or Doctors Without Borders? Can anybody just join or must it be doctors? Or? So it's quite interesting. We have a large majority of people that work with MSF that are not doctors. Oh. Um, so it should actually be you know, not be called only doctors without borders. It should be like, you know, 
humanitarians without borders to a certain degree. So we have a lot of support staff in terms of pharmacists, the nurses. Um, we have managers, so key logisticians, electricians, plumbers that go out, accountants, uh, architects, oh. they all go out with MSF and fit a key role. Because I think as you evolve within the healthcare space within these different countries, you start realizing you need more skills. And um, a lot of the time, it's actually the logisticians or the guys that are in charge of water and sanitation that end up affecting more people's lives. In a refugee camp, it's not the healthcare worker, it's not the doctor that saves the most lives. It's the guy dealing with the sewage and the water mm. and sanitation. So there's actually a key role for other types of individuals to get involved, even lawyers. Mm. See? Yeah. Let me see. I must say, uh, when I was studying, or before I did law, I actually was dreaming of um, becoming a doctor because I used to watch ER. <laughs> did not know that about that accountants and managers and logisticians were involved with doctors without borders. It's actually quite interesting that you mention that because it's a team effort in the end exactly mm. it's not just one uh, individual and i think that sometimes people like to hero worship and kind of like put mm. it down to one person but any great thing in life is never done by one person now let's move on to your startup is it what's what what's the name of the startup so we've had a bit of a, a, a long run so we've started off as a a not-for-profit organization called the Open Medicine Project about three to four years ago. It then evolved into a, we spun out a social for-profit about just just under a year ago, and it's called EM Guidance, and the startup is focused mainly on looking at information access in point-of-care uh, settings. So how do you get the right information to the right person at the right time? So we've created a platform where you can have geolocated guidelines for healthcare workers all around the country and again all around the globe that then changes on your geolocation as you move as a healthcare worker. So doctors download like an app? Yeah, so doctors can download the application. You have then access to all the guidelines in your vicinity that are applicable to you. So say, for instance, you work in at Grotesky Hospital, you download the application, and you can get all the Grotesky guidelines that we have on the application. You also can get in the South African national guidelines, as well as any national society guidelines that have joined the, the platform as well. If you then move to Johannesburg or, and you're in the Joburg Gen area, you then can get the Joburg Gen um, guidelines. We also then releasing quite soon, in the next couple of weeks, an open access medicines formulary which will be one of the first open access, access medicines formulary within South Africa. How does this uh, EM guidance or this app that you guys have developed, how is it going to benefit the ordinary person, if I may ask, or, or, or general close um, care patients, if I can put it that way? So a lot of it is to do with, you know, we focus mainly on the healthcare worker here directly. Okay. Because we started realizing, so it's mainly from our own personal experience, so it's myself and Yasin, and now we've gotten a team of eight individuals and it's mainly about our ability to access the right information. So knowing how to refer a patient to the, to the correct clinic, knowing when that clinic is open, knowing what I need to give my patients. I think what, and knowing also what's, the, what's safe to give my patient in terms of a medication 
um, how do I give that medication to the patient? Is there any special things that I need to tell the patient when they're taking a certain medication? That kind of information is actually very beneficial not only to the doctor but to the patient indirectly to a certain degree. So for us, we focus on the healthcare worker because we believe that they are the nodes or the change agents within the system where a lot of the, the mistakes happen. You know, it's the they don't always know every single thing, and then they um, they make mistakes. And I think we have to be very honest about this: is that healthcare workers can make mistakes. How do we decrease that? How do we empower them? And how do we make sure that they don't make mistakes with our patients? Is by supporting them and by giving them access to the information that they need. That's awesome. So basically, you guys are upskilling or intending to upskill. Uh, medical practitioners or medical workers in order to mitigate any mistakes. Yeah, and that's ultimately how the, the public benefits. Yeah, it's mainly to support them, you know, and yeah. basically um, allow them access to the information uh, at their fingertips because mm-hmm. we have excellent information. I mean, we were the, one of the first countries to do a, a heart transplant. We have some of the best health institutions in the world um, and in the rest of Africa right here. We have some of the best information with... Uh, with excellent uh, professors and excellent academics. How do we share that information? How do we not keep it in these ivory towers and how do we disseminate it? And that's one of the the big key uh, focuses on the platform. So how would you mention you have a team of eight, eight staff members or eight employees? I'm imagining that you, you bootstrap this company or did you get investors? So, I mean, initially we, we bootstrapped. Now we have uh, got on investors to take us further and to help us scale this uh, into a global company. And so for the listeners out there, especially the graduates or even entrepreneurs that want to get want to scale their business, what advice would you give them in terms of pitching to investors? Don't be naive. It's more about knowing your business and understanding the market. And understanding the risks of the market. I think sometimes when we create things, especially as entrepreneurs, you fall in love a little bit with your creation. And you're almost blinded by how amazing your creation is. And it's hard to then listen to people break that, uh, that creation down. I think that you have to be very brutally honest with yourself around what are the flaws of your creation, where's the positives, where's the negatives. And if you can show that to an investor that you've actually thought it through, not from the the point of view that your creation is perfect or your business plan is perfect, but that you have flaws and you mitigate those well, I think that's what investors uh, respect. And I think now being on you know on the on the one side of it, I can understand why investors are very reluctant to give startups within South Africa money because we don't always do that properly. We think what we create is amazing and we're like, oh, no, no, but there's there's no competitors that can beat us. It's like, really? Mm. You sure about that? You want, you want to maybe think about that a little bit? Um, mm. So I, 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 for me, the best advice would be be brutally honest with yourself. And if you can't be, the investor is sure as hell going to be. <laughs> so so be prepared for that. You mentioned your your friend Yasin Khan. You've mentioned now you've got a team of eight there. And you also mentioned the investors. Coming up with an idea is one part of it. I'm pretty sure that collaborating with others, how important is that in, in being effective in what you do? 
uh, it's vital. I think within South Africa, we have a strong secrecy culture. It's like, no, no, I can't tell you. I, I'm doing something amazing, but I can't tell you. And they whisper in like little corners. Um, we met a guy from Silicon Valley, and it was really interesting. He was saying, you know, in Silicon Valley, you'll have four companies sitting next to each other doing exactly the same thing, but each one has a different value proposition. And they will share almost everything with the other four companies, what they do, how they do, why they do. But it's that special value offering that they give that sets them apart from the other person. And in South Africa, we haven't got the culture of how do we share this information? How do we actually tell everybody how we're doing it, what we're doing, what was the pitfalls? Because you actually, you should want other people to succeed. But in South Africa, we have this culture of, especially in our entrepreneurship circles, like, no, 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 I can't tell you, no, no, it's, it's a secret, it's a secret. It's like, there's no secret. And, and then they're like, no, you're going to steal my idea. Ideas are worth nothing until you execute them. And this is my issue is South, Africa, South Africans believe an idea is worth millions. And it's like, do something with that idea. Show me how you're going to execute this idea. And this guy was basically saying, I will tell you everything about my business. And you know why I'm going to see, succeed over you? You know why I'm not scared that you're going to beat me? Because I'm going to nail it to the ground. Because I'm going to do every single thing that I can do to make this successful. And even if you want to, you're not going to be able to beat me. And that kind of mentality, that's what we should be kind of uh, fostering. Not the secrecy mentality. It's like, tell me everything and then try and beat me. That's what you need to do. So collaboration is, is essential for that. And it's about sharing. And hopefully we can start sharing more of that information around what makes something successful and what makes things not successful. Mohamed, I was there for your for your TEDx talk, but I also know you 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 a TED fellow. What what is it? What is a TED fellowship about? So the TED fellowship is a fellowship that identifies individuals that are doing good work around the world, and they basically bring you to a TED conference, and they allow you to speak at the TED conference. Uh, in a separate track of the TED Fellows, and then your talk could then go live on TED.com. So the fellowship is a lot of support from other people around the world that are also doing amazing things, and uh, it's it's a very kind of uh, nurturing community. The fellowship is mainly just kind of bringing you around different TED conferences and allowing you to talk to other people and engage with other people, and then they also help you refine how you give a talk and how you communicate your idea and your plan to others. For the TED Fellowship, if I recall correctly, it was for the Mobile Triage app. Is that correct or not? Yes, yes. What was the Mobile Triage about again? If you just briefly... So, the, I, not many South Africans know this, but South Africa actually is one of the few countries in the world that has developed a triage scale. And a triage scale basically allows patients to be triaged or... Yeah, triage when they come into an emergency room. So, for instance, if you're very ill, you get seen quicker than if you are not so ill and you can wait. And what was happening in South African hospitals was that people were coming in and we were seeing them on a first-come, first-served basis, and people were actually dying in our waiting rooms. And a group of clinicians came and physicians came up with a 
triogen system at Yersa Hospital. They then tested it, trialed it, and actually published papers on it. And it, it evolved from the Cape triage scale to the South African triage scale. And you know, with MSF and my work with MSF, I basically we've implemented the South African triage scale across many different countries. And with the Open Medicine Project, we converted that triage scale because even though the triage scale was there, people were still making mistakes uh, with the paper-based version. And we've con- we converted it into a digital version to decrease the amount of mistakes that uh, healthcare workers were making. Because on average, within a year, there was about 250,000 incorrect uh, triaged patients in the Western Cape alone. So by making it digital, you decrease the mistakes that you have. And now, since subsequently, we've made it open access, so it's in both app stores for people to use. We recently got a request from Spain to actually allow them to work on the code and implement a um, implement the, the system in a Spanish hospital. Oh, that's awesome! It's 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 pretty clear why you identify as someone who's doing good work. I, I'm I'm sure this this must be benefiting people on the ground um, because I've seen the queues at. Uh, at Yosta, I've seen the cruise in Hotskia. Um It can't be a pleasant uh, experience sitting there for so long. No, it's not. And I, and I think a lot of the things is more just communication, like, you know, having a board on the, or a dashboard saying, look, okay, this is how long a red patient would wait, or this is how long an orange patient would wait. Those small things, that communication back to the patients, actually make a huge difference. And I think it's these small tweaks that can improve the healthcare system quite substantially. Uh, but again, it wasn't just me. Again, it was a team. Um, and it's you can't really take an idea as just one person anymore. Yeah. Just out of interest, where, did this, where was this idea born? In some coffee shop, on the beach, France, or just out of interest? It was mainly born out of conversations between myself and Yasin. Okay. Um, I think we've both worked in very difficult situations. He worked in a, a lot of the um, um, emergency rooms around the Cape Flats, as well as in the private sector. And whenever I would come back from a mission, we would sit down, uh, debrief, and um, through our mutual discussions, it was actually born out of uh, just the difficulties that we faced. Yeah. That's fantastic. So, uh, Robert, Melon Guardian, top 200 youngsters in South Africa, dead fellow, top 100 good people in the world. The accolades have come pretty much thick and fast in the last few years. Do you consider yourself successful or how do you define success? Uh, Short answer, no. (laughs) Um, Yeah, how do you define success, eh? I don't, I don't think you ever attain it. I think you strive towards it. And you know, there's always this cliche of uh, you need to enjoy the journey, you know, the uh, the destination is not uh, important kind of thing. Yeah, it's more about trying to wake up every day and trying to strive, because it's, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just want to sleep. <laughs> you know, sometimes you just don't want to do the hard things, because it's always the path less traveled. It's always the hard path. That's the right path. Yeah. Sometimes you just want to take the easy path, man. So success is more about choosing the difficult path every day and sticking to it. And uh, not thinking that you're crazy, but 
going further with it and thinking that this can actually work. How would you describe yourself in three words? Hairy. Hairy. <laughs> Unfit. Red shoes. It's interesting you mentioned success. Like I was re- I'm reading this book by Roy Vaden. The name of the book is Take the Stairs. So picture this. You, you're walking and you see a flight of uh, stairs and escalators. What are you gonna? What are you gonna go towards? What are you gonna use? Most of us use the escalators. Hence, why I'm on foot. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole premise of the book was to take the stairs, and it, it has a very interesting line. He says, "Success is not owned; success is rented, and the rent is due every day." So that's like that's like my quote now for the whole <laughs> month. <laughs> I just implanting it in my head. The interesting thing you said mentioned about success. Your favorite Quranic verse, a story, or Islamic story? Um, I don't have a, a, a favorite one. I think the thing that I've learned over the last couple of years and through everything that I've seen and experienced mm. is that we're all the same. In human beings, all the same, no matter what religion, no matter what culture, what creed, you all want the same things. You want. Uh, a peaceful life you want uh, uh, you want your family to be taken care of you want them to be protected you want food on the table um, and all the religions no matter what you actually look at they all preach the same thing they all preach kindness honesty dignity um, compassion and they all teach this that you should want more for your neighbor than you want for yourself but how many of us actually do that? Uh, we do all the external stuff. You wear a beard, you uh, wear yamaka, you wear a top. But the characteristic of a good person, that we fail to do because it's easier to do this externalities. Mm. So for me, the favorite part of religion is the harder part. It's the characteristic part. Let's say you're going to die today. I guess in tonight because there's like two hours left. Yeah. Or like gonna, do I have a whole day? <coughs> you're going to die in the next hour. In the next hour? Yeah. Don't you want to give me like more time? Like why are you going to be so... Stuck? Okay. you got two hours to live. Two hours. Okay. So you have enough energy to... For only one or two sentences. What would you tell the people closest to you? Thank you. I'm going to take you on a journey to the year 2030. What is it? <laughs> Just let me try and figure. Fifteen plus. Forty years. years. Yeah. Okay. What is it that Mohammed Dawa wants to be? Wants to see? Share with us your vision. I'd like to see Mugabe out of Zimbabwe. Hopefully. Hopefully. Fourteen years. I think will give. I think you'll be hundred by then. Eh? <laughs> yeah, man, just doesn't stop, man. He could actually go on until then. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> what would I want to see? Yeah. Either personally or in terms of your, your your commitments, as we alluded to earlier. I don't know. I think on a broader scale, I think we want to see uh, people being more empathetic towards each other. Uh, people looking after the environment a bit better. I think by that time, if we haven't made those realizations, our planet is going to be in a much worse off situation. And... Uh, I think, yeah, just more to kind of go back to the previous question was 
I would love to see more and more people living the characteristics of being a good person because I think that's the key fundamental that we would want, that all of us would want in our lives. Just be a good person. Well, I want to thank you and I'm the officer here myself. Um, really appreciate you coming. I know your hours are quite hectic balancing those four balls. So thank you and um, I wish you all the best. Thank you, and thank you for, for having me. I uh, enjoyed uh, chatting to you guys. It's been uh, inspiring listening to you, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. Uh, I just want to tell the listeners out there that the shoes is quite rare. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, thank you for taking your time. Part of what we're trying to do at AccidentalMuslims.com is to share stories, uh, to create a network, uh, a place where people can look for inspiration. Um, and hopefully... Uh, uh, our listeners will take that from some of the insights you've shared with us. And uh, we pray that uh, your life is blessed and you go from success to success. And uh, yeah, stay fit. Thanks. <laughs> so that's it for today's show. We hope you added value. We hope you enjoyed it. But most of all, we hope our guests inspired you to live with purpose. Don't forget to send us your suggestions via info at accidentalmuslims.com. If you know anybody out there that is inspiring, that's leading, that's living with purpose, please uh, do contact us. And remember, feedback is our oxygen. So follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you enjoyed. God bless. Assalamu alaikum.